The following is a Frank R. Wilson presentation. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. We talk to those from the industry and learn about them and their favorite scores. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So let's take a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we're going to play today. recognize that music? It's one of the favorites of our guest today. He's a Londoner who now lives in Australia, where he's a film historian and film festival organizer, and he's branching out into screenwriting. He's uh, interviewed and written about some of the biggest names in the film industry in publications like Cinema Retro, Film Inc., and uh, The Spectator. He has a keen eye when it comes to reviewing films and their scores, and our paths crossed because of our Mutual love for the music of John Barry. Uh, please uh, join me in welcoming Steve Saragossi to our program today. Hi, Steve. Hi, Frank. Lovely to be here. How are you? I'm uh, really grateful for you making time for us. I, I do mean by uh, saying that you do have a keen eye for such things, so I'm really looking forward to our chat today. And I think our oh, audience is going to really, I think our audience is going to really enjoy some of your selections. Um, I hope so. Yeah, we um, we generally. Uh, start off by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves and uh, especially their early years and those sorts of things and just kind of give us a little biography, if you will, growing up and, and things of that nature. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure, sure. Well, I grew up in London. Um, I was born in 1960, so I sort of lived through that that tumultuous period, you know, hippies and then moving into the punk era. But I was, I was very fortunate um, for my 12th birthday in 1972 i got not only got my first record player but i got the lp of my favorite show at the time which was the persuaders ah. now as you probably know frank the persuaders album is really a john barry primer um because it includes not only the theme to that show but some key bond themes Midnight Cowboy, The Chase, some of his TV work. It, it just was a real, I was going to say eye-opener, but obviously it's an ear-opener. And it mm -hmm. just turned me on to film music at the tender age of 12. And, and I kind of never looked back. Um, film music has been an incredibly important part of my life ever since. And I've said many times, I don't think a day goes by where I don't listen to film music. 
Mm. Um, you know, I, I sit at my desk and there's always something playing in the background. It just, it just really speaks to me in ways that other music um, just doesn't. And anyway, so, so I, I've always been immersed in, in, in movies. My late mother worked for the rank organization. And so she had an abiding love of film that got transmitted to me and relatively late in life, I decided to pull all this information I had in my head into a master's degree in film, which I did do, and discovered that I had a, a, a talent of sorts for writing. And I started writing feature articles, and I got the attention of uh, the wonderful magazine Cinema Retro, which mm-hmm. is based in New York. Uh, Lee Pfeiffer's magazine right and um, one thing led to another and I'm you know before I know it I'm flying to Los Angeles I'm interviewing James Kahn and Sidney Lumet and all these guys and and it's great and as you probably know you know these these things kind of snowball and um, you start writing for other magazines and when I moved out here um, you know which we can sort of talk about you know why I moved out here um I got into organizing film festivals and I've mounted a, a couple of um, pretty successful film festivals uh, one of which is still going today the British Film Festival and uh, it's just something I really enjoy doing and I like programming repertory cinema as well when I get a chance which is nice yeah did you did you when you were at that tender young age did you ever feel like you were an outlier that Somehow, uh, oh. you know, why is it that I'm, you know, I don't have a lot of friends that seem to like this film music thing. I mean, that's what I experienced when I was a kid. I always felt yeah, kind of totally, weird. totally. And it wasn't until the advent of the internet that not only do you find out there are others like yourselves, but that they're listening or they listened to the same kind of things that you were pretty much the same time, and that we were all discovering these composers, Barry, Morricone, Schiffer, and Neil Hefty, at almost the same time, um, and the same albums, and it just shows that, you know, good music rises to the top. We all found these things on our own, um, but a lot of other people were listening to this stuff the whole time as well. But yeah, yeah sure, it was... It was yeah, rock music kind of passed me by. What can I tell you? <laughs> well, let's uh, let's dive into your list because I, I do I, I love your list. There's a a really nice variety of different uh, styles, composers, and films. And why don't we start off with a a film called Winning, uh, with a score composed by Dave Grusin. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to include that one in uh, in your list of favorites? Well, I think I mean I love Dave Grusin, but I I wouldn't say that this is particularly indicative of his style it's 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 no one golden pond it's not you know it's not the firm but this score to me epitomizes 1960s pop culture movie score writing Mm. and and i mean that in the in the nicest possible way it's not throwaway music but it it's just perfectly encapsulates that um pop orchestral style um and it grooves and it's just terrific um it was a fairly hard lp to come across um uh, and i think it still is and i don't even think it's out on cd which is a travesty mm. um but it's it's a great score it really is a great score and it, and it's just 
it screams 1968 from every note. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I mean, Grusin's one of those few guys that really had a, a he had quite a varied career. He didn't just he wasn't just pigeonholed into uh, film scoring. I mean, he had a, a, a pretty good solo career on a, in his own right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he had his own jazz label, didn't he? Um, probably still does. GLP, I think. Um, yeah. Did some incredible jazz albums and and oh, absolutely. I mean, I love his work. I mean, I love Three Days of the Condor. Um, and you know, I've got many, if not all, of his uh, major scores. And and I thought it was very ballsy of him uh, when he scored the firm. Totally mm. for piano, no other instrument, just piano. Right. I mean, the producers must have had a heart attack, but he <laughs> really pulled that off. It worked. It worked. It totally well, worked. It totally yeah. worked. Well, let's go ahead and listen to this uh, cue from uh, from the film called Winning, and it's written by composer Dave Grusin. Kind of brought it up, but I am curious. So, what led to your um, deciding to uh, leave your homeland, the UK, and uh, go off to the the land down under in uh, Australia? <laughs> well, it was it was one of those things. My my brother in law um, was uh, traveling the world, and he pitched up in Australia, and he met what was to be his uh, wife out here, and. Um, they got married and they invited my wife and I out here for the wedding. I've never been to Australia before. Mm -hmm. Came out here and uh, this was uh, on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. And it okay. was like, wow, you know, this is just like incredible. So beautiful. And, you know, both my wife and I said to myself, I mean, literally, boy, wouldn't it be great living in a place like this? 
And anyway, so we went home and carried on with life. And uh, but the, the the seed was definitely sown right there. And my brother-in-law kept saying, "Oh, you should come move out here. You should come move out here." And you know what? Long story short, within four years, we did it. We got wow. uh, yeah. And, and and not only that, within another three years, we became citizens. So I now have dual citizenship of Great Britain and Australia. And I love it here. It's just suits me down to the ground. Perfect work life balance. It is a, uh, it is a magical place. I'm, I've had the good fortune of, to be there on business and on holiday, both. And, uh, it does have that kind of effect on you. It's a spectacular, very clean country, incredible sights and sounds and smells. And uh, the people are off the charts friendly and stuff. So it's a, yeah, it's a great place. Yeah, you, yeah. you don't have to convince me. I, I understand, <laughs> but that's, that's a great story. Um, another film you chose was, uh, the outlaw Josie Wells, uh, with composer Jerry Fielding. I'm, uh, would be curious to hear your thoughts on uh, why that made your list. Mm. Well, when most people talk about Jerry Fielding and his movie music, they generally start with the wild bunch and move on from there. But when the outlaw Josie Wales came out, I'm a big Clint Eastwood fan. When Josie mm-hmm. Wales came out in 76, I was only 15 and it was the first, my first exposure or my first knowingly um, exposure to Jerry Fielding's music. And the opening theme, which I think you're going to play for us, was just just off the charts amazing. And I love the way the and I've always loved it, the drumming at the beginning, which is very militaristic. And, it, and it's a motif that he, you know, once I got into feeling, I realized he uses quite a lot. But it's got a although it's set in the Civil War, it's, and it, it's got a kind of modern jazz idiom, which is unsurprising considering Fielding's background in jazz um but it's just a power such a powerful piece of music and then and then within months i then heard his score to the gauntlet which couldn't have been more different um just a uh, an amazing jazz album in its own right very reminiscent of uh, miles davis's sketches of spain and then and then finally yes i, I got to see the wild bunch heard that score and and the whole fielding thing blew up for me um but Josie Wales was the very first fielding score that I that I heard, and and it's a, a terrific score. And again, and if I'm right, I might be wrong in this, but I think it's another score that still hasn't been released on CD. Hmm. That's that, that surprises me, especially know, these days where there's a lot of a, a lot of a lot of scores finally seeing the light of day on CD. I know. So it's if a, it has, it's literally only been in the last year or so. It, it's one of those ones that's you know just just fallen through the cracks for some reason. Yeah. Um, are you, uh, well, no, I'll, I'll get to that later. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and play this cue. This is from the, uh, the main theme from the film outlaw Josie Wales. Oh, I know what I was going to ask real quick. Was it, it does memory serve me right? Jerry Fielding, uh, his career was cut rather short, wasn't it? Didn't he die at a relatively early age? He, yeah, he, he died very early, which was, which is a great pity. Um, yeah. I think we've all, we've all, Sort of suffered that loss, um, but yeah, I think he was in his early fifties, which is which is mm. tragic. Yeah. Well, let's let's hear something he left behind for all of us to enjoy. This is the main theme from the outlaw Josie Wells, written by Jerry Fielding.
are you a musician? Do I understand? No, no, I mean, do you I, understand I, I, music I, or play it or read it? Not at all. Not at all. And I get that a lot. Um, you know, my son's a musician, uh, and I and, and I and I love music. But no, I've ne- I, I don't have the aptitude. I I've, I've tried playing the drums once. Have no sense of rhythm. <laughs> um, I, I picked up a trumpet once, and it just sounded like a cat being strangled. So, no, and 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 so I mean, you know, endless admiration of uh, of people who who are musicians. And I have a lot of musician friends, and and I think it's a wonderful gift. But no, no, I have no musical aptitude whatsoever. Yeah, and yet this is the thing that frustrates me is that I'll hear something that I like, and I know it's kind of like other things that I've heard that I like, and I wish I understood the the musical terms or the or yes, the or the, or the technical reasons why that seems to appeal to me. You know what I'm saying? Uh, totally, totally. Um, uh, we'll, we will we can talk about it in, in other tracks, but yeah, there's certain you know when when someone asks me what is it about John Barry and and I know what it is I know I I can I can I know it when I hear it but it's something about his his chord changes and or key changes and and what he does with a melody but I can't seem to articulate it better than that and 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 I, I found out how hard that is when I came to review um movie scores in writing and and suddenly realized how hard it is to impart on paper what a piece of music sounds like. It's incredibly difficult. Mm. Um, and yes, it would be wonderful to have that armory of, uh, of musical, proper musical terminology, you know, ostinatos and, and all that stuff to be able to sort of try and, and, and get over to the reader um, if they've never heard that piece of music before. Yeah. Another great composer that you uh, included on your list uh, Lalo Schifrin. Uh the uh, film is Magnum Force. Uh, huh, funny, another Clint Eastwood movie. It's um, <laughs> uh, a pattern here. Yeah. <laughs> tell, us, uh, tell us what went into your thinking of including Magnum Force in your list of favorite scores. Um, I, that was such... When, when you listen to it in isolation, it's such an unusual piece of orchestration for, uh, you know... Um, Dirty Harry movie, the, you know the the, the choir. Um, it, it's just an incredible piece of music, and and, and also I, I think when it's juxtaposed with the imagery of the main titles to that movie, which was basically just Clint Eastwood's hand holding the magnum against a red background, it was it was just it just knocked me sideways when I saw this film. Um, when I first saw it in in I think. I didn't get to see it till the mid seventies again. And it was, it was just a, such a powerful piece of music. And then, and then that kind of kickstarted everything for, on Schifrin for me. Um, and, but I've never, I've never forgotten Magnum Force as a theme. It's not, I wouldn't say it's his best theme, but it's for me, it's his most memorable. Um, it's a, just a terrific piece of music. And he's an interesting man too. I, I recently saw a documentary on his life, and I had uh, no idea. I didn't know his original roots. I guess I want to say Argentina. If I'm, I don't know if I'm correct mm, on mm. that. But no, absolutely, yeah. And uh, and his his journey to Hollywood. It was just really absolutely fascinating. I encourage anyone who's into 
film music in general or, or in his music in particular to search that out on YouTube. It's absolutely fascinating to hear his story. Well, let's, um, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and listen to this for ourselves. This is the, uh, the main theme from the film uh, Magnum Force written by the maestro Lalo Schifrin. mention it in your uh, in our introduction but i know you made a point to mention this to me that you were had a particular interest and in, i think it's obvious from the scores we've been talking about that you have a particular interest in films from the 60s and the 70s hmm. I, i'm curious because you're still very active in in present day films and what's going on and those sorts of things how have things changed from uh, films in the 60s and 70s to present day is it and has it gotten better or gotten worse i mean i know obviously things like special effects have gotten better but i mean just kind of in general do you think scores have evolved to to be more effective or uh, you know just kind of your overall thoughts and opinions about that well if we talk about film music then and now to start with i i've kind of mellowed um in my dotage because i used to be i used to be that guy where all film music now is rubbish and, you know, can't touch the guys from the 50s and 60s and 70s. And that's the end of the story. But, you know, that it just simply isn't true now There there are composers nowadays who are well worth listening to and do have tons of talent. Um, people like uh, Alexandre Desplat. Uh, people like uh, John Ekstrand, who's an up-and-comer, 
he and people like the the late and and so great Johan Johansson, who I thought was just the most incredible composer, and I could not believe it when he passed so young a year or so ago. Mm. Um, but no, there are definitely definitely composers now who who do have the touch. Film music went through a period, and I mean, still to a certain extent, going through a period where it's certainly less melodic. And, and more sound design, that's true. Mm. Um, but it's it's a generalization, and it doesn't hold true for for everything. Um, there are some some mighty good scores um, out and about. Yeah, you you nailed it. That's where I started to lose it. Was it just? It seemed to me like it was almost. With all due respect to the people that did this, it just seemed to me like it was starting to turn into noise instead of melody, and and I and I missed that. Mm, uh, for sure, but it, but it's good to hear that you feel like that that's that's starting to come back. So there's a uh, I, I, I mean, you'll have to remind me. I don't know which one it was you film, but uh, and I know there's several things I like in this film. For the Thomas Crown Affair by uh, Michelle mm. Legrand. Uh, mm, mm. I don't know what cue we were going to play from this, but maybe tell us a little bit about uh, the cue and and why you uh, again chose to include this in your list of favorites. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the the wittily titled cue, the Boston Wrangler. And this, if you remember the film, is a scene where Steve McQueen's Tommy Crown goes out one night under cover of darkness, um, hopping over balconies and rooftops and uh, gets rid of the people who are tailing him, um, have been shadowing him. Um, and it's... Uh, it's a cheeky little cue um, from a really great score. Everyone remembers the song "Windmills of Your Mind," um, mm-hmm. but it's it's a it's a wonderful and again similarly to "Winning," it's one of those great 1960s Silver Age pop orchestral scores. I was very fortunate to, for, for my master's degree thesis, in fact, to sit down for a few hours with um, director Norman Jewison, and oh, wow. uh, I couldn't resist talking about the music in his films because he's had some very great guys score his films, Quincy Jones, um, all sorts of people. And when when we spoke about this film, he said without hesitation, this was the best scored film of his entire career. Mm. Um, he said it was a joy to work with Legrand, um, ideas just buzzing around the whole time. And, uh, and I think that shows it, it is one of those landmark 60s scores. And this is just a really fun track. And, and it's interesting too. I mean, the composer is almost literally the last person that comes in in the whole process of, making a film and it and it uh there's there has to be a lot of trust and uh respect between both the director and the composer if it's going to work uh sounds to me like that that's part of what he was saying was that it was just a delightful collaboration because most times directors don't know anything about music they just know what they're gonna what they're gonna like if they hear it right i guess absolutely yeah i mean yeah i mean a a lot of films fall into the, the 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 temp track trap where you know directors fall in love with the tracks that they play throughout filming and then demand their composer's score like the temp tracks, which I, I think is the worst way of scoring a film. Yeah. And it's interesting now too. I, I've had the privilege of talking with several composers 
uh, as a result of this this show and uh you know to think of how that's changed now uh you used to you know do a demo which a lot of times was basically just a piano and they would say well all right well, this is what this theme sounds like and and just try to envision you know a bunch of strings coming in here and a, and envision horns coming up at this part and it, now they can basically create that electronically so you know exactly what it's going to sound like when it's being recorded. I mean, that's oh, a fascinating yeah. improvement, isn't it, in the whole oh, process? Sure. Absolutely. And I think what what's, what came out of this sort of process, because, I, I mean, you probably agree, I think composing is one of the top three, you know, jobs in film after the director, you know, the, the editor, the cinematographer and the composer is such an, in, or her is such an integral part. And I think it's interesting that, you know, film history is peppered with long term collaborations between directors and composers, mm-hmm. um, which I think speaks volumes. I mean, I'm obviously people, um, you know, my mind's gone blank, but you know, John Williams and Steven Spielberg and, you know, well, Brian Forbes you know, and John Barry did a lot of well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, Morricone and there's probably about six or seven directors that he's made umpteen films with. Mm. Um, you know, and, and that is one of those wonderful collaborations where, you know, director and composer click, they're they're you know, the composer is involved early on. And I think it, it reflects really well in the finished product. Um I think Morricone was one of the first to break the mold where his music was scored very early and even played on set and and scenes would be shot around the score, which was unheard of. Yeah. Um, in fact, well, we, we may talk about that in a moment. I think I recall a, a story about that uh, that we'll mm, reference here in mm. a moment. Let's go ahead and play this cue from the Thomas Crown Affair uh, that uh, Steve has chosen for his list, and it's written by the maestro Michel Legrand.
I'm sure since you're like you're a, a collector like I am, you've seen this uh, almost explosion of, of scores being. Well, let's use an example. You've picked a couple here that aren't on uh, aren't available on CD, but then there's some enterprising individuals that are starting to re-record these uh, mm-hmm. that, that haven't been available, and sometimes they're constructing it from from here. Yeah, they yes, have the actual score available. Uh, have you been a fan of those? Do you think that they pull it off pretty effectively? I think they're getting better. Um, I think some of the early ones from City of Prague Orchestra um, mm-hmm. were a little bit shaky, but I think they've come along in leaps and bounds over the years. Um, and, and and I think they're highly credible now. And yeah, these scores recreated just by ear. I mean, if you think about how hard that oh, must be, I, I can't it, imagine. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, you know, Walkabout was done recent, well, not recently, quite a few years ago now, and and wasn't bad at all. Um, I, I have to confess, I didn't like the line in wintery recording. I, mm. I found it curiously flat, although you it's know, it's hard to um, recreate. It, well, exactly. Yeah, but we'll talk about that. One, I think I've got a right. cue coming up from that later, but that's such an incredible score um, from a man at the height of his powers. Oh, yeah, so. yeah, it'd be like trying to recreate the 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 original recording of the James Bond theme. That mm. I, I've I've never heard one that even comes remotely close to the to the original because no. I mean that guitar had a special tone to it the 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 studio where it was recorded i mean everything kind of came together and it's been in, impossible to duplicate that mm-hmm. uh so yeah I, I know what you're saying but yeah some of these re-recordings i i'm just grateful that that some enterprising individuals have been doing this because it has made available some scores that for whatever reason are, are lost you know they can't find the original tapes or there's just not enough mm-hmm. interest in releasing it on cd and so uh oh yeah i encourage I mean, our uh, Mr. Moses is one that comes to mind in that, you know, yeah. we, we would never have had that. John Barry score would never have seen Light of Day in any other way. And it, it's a great recording. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just sounds exactly like Barry sounded in 1965. Um, and uh, I'm very grateful we have that. You, um, let's see here. Another one of your uh, favorites, in fact, we were just referencing this and talking about it. I, I've not heard of this film. I, in fact, I even asked you as we were preparing, is this the name of the film or the cue? The film is called Fistful of Dynamite. Now, I guess, is this part of like a, a, the, the series of films that, that Eastwood did? No, it's, it's, um, it's a Sergio Leone movie. Um, it stars James Coburn, Rod Steiger. It okay. got called different things in different territories i think in the states it was called duck you sucker um what? in france it was called once upon a time the revolution um but in most territories it was called fistful of dynamite came out in 71 it was a tale of a mexican revolutionary who teams up with um, an ira uh terrorist on the run um, to rob a bank it's the usual shenanigans um but it's one it's it's one of my favorite morricone scores which is really saying something because as you well know we're talking 
of a man with in excess of 500 scores under his belt. Oh, it's um, insane. I, I, would he have I a record, do you think? I mean, he must far, have. I guess. Yeah. He must have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, and it's not just quantity, it's quality as well. Sure. I mean, in that period from like 68 to 72, he was scoring 20, 30 films a year. Um, it's extraordinary. Um, yeah. And that and they're all at least have something worth listening to if not a lot worth listening to is is just extraordinary but this scores a fistful of dynamite is um i i think this is my personal feeling many people may not agree i i think that this is this is the the point at which the relationship between leone and morricone reached its apothesis whereas you know and it was a perfect symbiosis of their creative talents whereas beforehand you know obviously you know leone was calling the shots and morricone was reacting to what was needed i think when they came to do this film they were both um at the peak of their powers and and both at the peak of their fame and fortune um and the resulting score is one of the most listenable albums of morricone track by track you know usually with morricone there's a couple of duff tracks there just is but this is a solid listen from first cue to last and there's such a, a diversity of of um of melody and musical styles on this album um but this particular track that you're going to play for us after the explosion is um one of the most beautiful tracks which is not what you'd expect from a from a spaghetti western but it's a beautiful <laughs> beautiful track and and what you mentioned just a little while ago i said we'd we'd come back to that i, I and i think it was on this program someone told me the story that i i can't remember if it was the good bad and the ugly or fistful dollars but but yeah there was a piece of music that he had written i think it was like a big showdown for a gunfight uh, in one of those films and they actually they actually played Morricone's music that he had composed for this scene mm. while they were filming it and be, yep. because they felt that it was so effective that it would help bring out the performances that they needed. Yep. Is that I'm kind of what sure. you were referencing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, and you know, Leone would, would actually cut the action to the music, you know, uh, on the set. He, he, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, this is why... You know these films. Uh, it's not. For, it's not for nothing. It's not for nothing that these cool films are sometimes called operatic because um, he's using leap motifs, themes for each individual character and, and the way that they intertwine. And you know, especially in in films like Once Upon a Time in the West, where each character has their own theme, and. I think it was used for the first time on that film where he actually played, um, it was Frank's theme, Jason Robards' character's theme on set, uh, and it really helped um, Robards get into character. And, and, and also, I think on Fistful of Dynamite, it was it was done as well. Um, mm. Extraordinary thing to do, actually. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think it ever been done before. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. This is a cue from the film Fistful of Dynamite. And it's written by probably the most prolific composer of all time, Ennio Morricone.
I find it interesting, and I know that you're kind of into this. Um, I, I'm trying to understand the resurgence of LPs, of albums <laughs> that's happened over the past few years. Because um, I'm, uh, I mean, I've got hundreds of albums, but but that was when you know people typically bought. There was that was the only option. It was an album. Uh, but I haven't bought one even out of nostalgia for, uh, well, I, I don't know. I haven't bought one for 20 years or whatever. What, what do you think's behind that, that there's been this resurgence? Um, I'm, I'm unsure. I'm unsure. But you're absolutely right. And, and there's a lot of scores, old scores, that are being re-released on, you know, 180-gram vinyl, colored vinyl, blah, blah, blah. There's a, it, it, it strikes me as a little odd because I'm not sure who the audience for these are, whether they're being bought because it's hip, because, I mean, I've never been driven to rebuy any of my LPs on LP, not least of which because I don't know what it's like in America, but here in Australia, they are exorbitantly expensive and when we're talking like 80 or 90 dollars each which is i know do you you talk about the new ones the 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 180 gram ones that are yeah that's insane yeah it's nothing like that in the states no i know i know i just wouldn't do it the uh, the only new album i got and and i had to get it and and it was an essential purchase was uh, was Walkabout, where they found mm. the original Master Tapes and right. released it. They did release it on CD as well, but I thought, no, I'm going to get the vinyl. I've, I've had my Japanese bootleg LP for, <laughs> like, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, Pooh, was it? Pooh Records? Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Although I found out, I found out that it was, it was not Japanese at all. It was some guy in the UK who was just trying to throw people off the scent. And if you ever translated the Japanese writing on the back of that LP, it's actually instructions how to make a lawnmower. There you go. <laughs> oh, I well, I don't know if you heard my inter- the, the interview I published with uh, that I did with John Barry many yes, years ago. Yes, I did. I you did. know, he told the story about how the Japanese were largely responsible for a lot of those uh, mm-hmm. bootlegs. So that's oh, yeah. that's fascinating. I know. But that that was that was the only way to hear that score, and it was to be honest, it was a really good recording. Um, yeah. I never had any issues with it, but no, when it, when they finally discovered the master with a couple of extra tracks. Yeah. I, I shelled out my 80 bucks and I got it. Well, I but mean, I, I know I, that there are some people that claim that, that, you know, the, the, the sound is warmer and richer on LP. And it's funny how maybe I, you know, maybe I just don't have a finely tuned ear. Um, well, because I, you know, the truth be told, I kind of, I usually like the sound on the CDs better, to be honest. I like the crispness yeah. and clearness of a CD. I'm not a hundred percent convinced that one's better than the other. My relationship with, with LPs, which I do still buy, and I'm, I'm talking about, you know, picking up the old ones on eBay is it's all part of the, the whole package to have mm. The, the the to have the item itself to look at that sleeve to to handle it to to place the lp the whole ritual of putting the lp on the turntable it's all part and parcel and you know i'll even put up with a few bits of crackles every now and again i don't really mind that <laughs> i just love them as uh, 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 as pieces of uh, 
you know, you know, I pick up an LP and think, wow, this LP is 50 years old, and and you know, here it is. And then I've got like umpteen copies of the same album. I'm ashamed to say, because <laughs> um, they're different issues. You know, I've got like different covers. Four, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got four different copies of Going to Live Twice. Japanese one, <laughs> the US one, the UK one, all different sleeve art yeah. and the rest of it. Well, it's, um, well, we'll lead to another one that's on your list that is a uh, certainly very high up on my personal list. And that's the Oscar winning score for uh, the film The Line in Winter, written by John Barry. Mm. Tell us a little bit about uh, your reasons for including that on in your, in your list of well, films. <clears throat> the Lion in Winter is my favorite film of all time. Wow. John, John Barry is probably my favorite composer of all time. Lion in Winter is my favorite score of his. And this track, which you're going to play, which is Eleanor's Arrival, is my favorite track on that mm. album. So this is, this is John Barry distilled everything that I love about Barry distilled down into one track and, and the line in winter is such an extraordinary score it, it was such a departure for him in 1968 to do yeah. this quasi you know you know religioso you know uh, historic score um and i was very fortunate my my mum went to see the movie when it came out in 1968 she actually bought the lp this was several hmm. years before i got into film music and so she yeah. used to play this lp and even at like a ridiculously young age of eight or nine, I'm like, you know, playing with my train set in the front room, and my ears picking up this music. And I thought, well, I don't know what I thought, but there, it, it resonated with me somehow. And um, what I think was masterful about this score is, yeah, he 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 scores this, you know, film set in the Middle Ages, very much in the style, the historical style. But there's still, I don't know if you agree very much a sort of a modern edge to it. Um, oh, yeah. There's, you know, if you think of the, the ostinato at the beginning of uh, the main theme, there, there's something very modernistic about the score while still hitting all the tropes, you know, the choir, that majestic choir he brought in mm-hmm. um, and the other orchestration. I, I, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a masterwork. It is an absolute masterwork. And I, I'll, uh, I won't take too much time, but I will tell you that one of the one of the grandest experiences of my entire life was uh, they had a special uh, 70th birthday celebration for John Barry, where they played. Uh, I forgot which orchestra it was in New York, but it was at uh, at Radio City, I think, or Carnegie, I can't remember which. But um, uh, where they they played to the screen, they had you know they had the movie going up on a screen. But a live orchestra and choir performed the score for mm. the line in winter. And while Barry was in attendance, that was the one time, the only time I ever got to meet him face to face. And and I tell you, I was I was impressed, Steve. I tell you, it was it wasn't too far off. I don't know how mm. they pulled it off, but it was it was talk about, you know, and being able to hear it live, I and mean, I'm I'm getting goosebumps now just thinking about it. It was just absolutely, absolutely it amazing. amazing. It really is. It well, really is. let's uh Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, you know, just thinking back to the main theme, I mean, he did use synthesizers in there, but very, very subtly just yeah. to augment it. You know, it, and it's, and as I say, that choir, I've, I've tried finding other stuff by that um, choir, but it is the 
uh, singing Latin, no less. Monteverdi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I swear to God, after a while, I, I, I can actually sing all of those songs. This one that you're going to play, Animating Team, I, can, I know that Latin text now. I've played it that many times. Wow. Well, let's, uh, let's hear this cue for, uh, for ourselves, Eleanor's Arrival. It's from the uh, Oscar-winning film, several different Oscars, uh, The Lion in Winter, written by the maestro John Barry.
we were talking about the romance of the uh, owning the LP and those sorts of things. Do you do you think that the days of owning a physical piece of media, whether it be a CD or an LP, are those days fast disappearing and that everybody's going to just have it, the music on their computer or their smartphone or something and that there won't be a something you can hold and touch and look at? Uh, are, think, are those days think, disappearing? I think those days are disappearing, but I think it's a big mistake. Um, the minute you do that, you're you're at risk of, you know, certainly at the risk of losing your entire connection, uh, collection um, because it's at the behest of the, the people who own it, whether they make it available to you still. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is why, you know, I still have shelfs of books, of LPs, um, CDs. I will never get rid of my physical media. Um, and I think it's a big mistake, although, you know, obviously there's a convenience factor there. Um, you, you do run the risk of, of, uh, of not having it one day. Well, are we just old fuddy duddies that we just need to, you know, we just, you know, yeah. we're just old fashioned and we need to hold on to that stuff and we're not with the Re- times. I mean, I don't know. Re- Re- rejoice in the fuddy duddiness. hundred percent. <laughs> you know, what the hell? I, you know, I, I will never part with my stuff and and you know it's all yeah i, I mean look, you probably read between the lines I, I am an inveterate collector um and it's it these things can disappear you know i've you know, there's, there's been some movies just off the top of my head there's been a couple of music movies on uh, one of the streaming services here in australia um that i enjoyed watching and they've since just disappeared you know they their license has run out or you know whatever and then all of a sudden i can't watch them anymore and if i had the oh. dvd i'll just pluck it off the shelf put yeah. it in That's right. um you know and, and same well not maybe not necessarily with books i mean you know I, i'm not a complete luddite i do have a kindle and i do purchase books on there occasionally but i still prefer uh, to have a, a book, a, a proper book. Um, yeah. There's something about it. Well, Steve, I can't, uh, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed talking with you. We've, uh, we've communicated, known each other for several years uh, through the magic of Facebook and our, and our love of film music. And it's so nice to finally have a chance through the, the miracle of the internet to be able to talk to you for the first time. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I hope you have as well. It's been great. I've I've had a terrific time. I could do this all day. (laughs) (laughs) So could I. But I and I think our listeners will benefit from uh, from not only your insights but also the great cues that you chose and fascinating list. My thanks again to to our guest Steve Saragossi to uh, share his favorites with us and his knowledge and uh, thank all of you for listening and liking the program and sharing it with others. Uh, there's a big audience out there of people who love film music, and we always appreciate our uh, listeners spreading the word. So uh, that's going to wrap it up for this particular episode. There's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time is up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score? What's the Score?